Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 57. There are now 57 varieties of the History of the Americans podcast. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on January 26, 2022, in Austin, Texas. So that little quip caused me to look up the origin of Heinz 57 sauce and the 57 varieties slogan. That sent me to a write-up on Snopes, I know, I know, which we are going to assume is true because we can't verify everything in this world. No, it really had nothing to do with Heinz once selling 57 different products. Here's a short bit on the Heinz 57 varieties slogan, quote, This cash phrase had nothing to do with the actual number of varieties produced by H.J. Heinz which by then totaled over 60. Rather, Heinz was riding an elevated train in New York when he spied an advertising placard in the train car promoting 21 styles of shoes. Struck by the concept and recognizing that catchiness and resonance were far more important qualities for a company slogan than literal accuracy, Heinz cast about for the perfect number to use for his own company's version of the phrase, Settling on 57, Heinz soon put the number to work, and within a week, the sign of the green Heinz pickle bearing the words 57 varieties was everywhere. Heinz could find a place to stick it. By the time the H.J. Heinz Company celebrated its 100th anniversary in 1969, its product line included more than 1,100 items, But over the years, the number 57 had permeated almost every aspect of the Heinz corporate culture. Besides being a company slogan, it appeared in the name of one of their best-selling products, Heinz 57 Steak Sauce, their mailing address, P.O. Box 57, and their phone number, 273-5757. Yankee great Joe DiMaggio reportedly lost out on a $10,000 promotional deal with Heinz when his major league record hitting streak ended at 56 games in July 1941. Up until the 1950s, anyone who wrote to Heinz about an upcoming 57th birthday received a free case of Heinz products. And in 2001, Heinz paid $57 million to have the new home of the Pittsburgh Steelers football team dubbed Heinz Field. My B for the long digression, that would be an example of following my muse. Anyway, if you are new to the podcast, we are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. We hope you enjoy listening to the History of the Americans podcast as much as we enjoy making it. And you tell all your friends, spread the word on your social propaganda website of choice, Write us a nice review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you like writing reviews. And subscribe in your favorite podcast app. This is a labor of love and your support is very motivating. Support for the writing of this episode was provided by Tracy, the front cabin flight attendant on United Flight 399 from Newark to Austin on January 22nd. She kept me plied with bourbon and feigned interest in this thing that I was writing. Much obliged. Last episode, we concluded with one version of the famous story in which Pocahontas seems to have saved the life of John Smith. 
As I hinted, there is controversy over that moment. Modern historians, aided by new scholarship around the practices of Indians, argue that the whole thing was a ceremony, in fact, staged, and that Smith's life wasn't in jeopardy, even if he thought that it was. We'll get back to that in due course. Maybe the modern scholars aren't right. Powhatan had informed Smith that they were now friends and released him to return to Jamestown, all on the condition that Smith sent back two great guns, meaning cannon, and a grindstone. Smith happily agreed to do this, knowing that at over 3,000 pounds each, it would be effectively impossible for the Indians to transport the immensely heavy artillery. He returned to Jamestown on Saturday, January 2nd, 1608, with a contingent of 12 Powhatan men led by Rawhunt, one of the Paramount Chief's most trusted lieutenants. Suffice it to say that the Indians could not move the demi-culverins. Smith gave them gifts for Powhatan in lieu of guns, big or otherwise, and sent them on their way. After a month of Smith's absence, Jamestown was in sad shape. Newport, who had promised to return in November, still had not arrived. President Ratcliffe had used the excuse of Smith's absence. It was easy for Ratcliffe and the other gentlemen to imagine that Smith had died. To add Gabriel Archer to the council. Of the original 108 or so colonists, only around 40 were still alive to celebrate New Year's 1608. And the gentlemen among them had had enough. Arthur's vote would support a decision to abandon Jamestown. The plan was to commandeer the Discovery, the one remaining vessel capable of making it across the Atlantic. When Smith arrived on January 2nd, a group of a dozen or so surviving gentlemen had gone on board the Discovery and were preparing it to sail. Smith directed men loyal to him to point the cannon on shore at the Discovery and said that he would sink her if the fleeing toffs didn't return to shore. They cracked under that pressure and gave up their plan to sail, but hated Smith all the more for it. Ratcliffe then hastily convened his rigged council, which voted to execute Smith for the deaths of Emery and Robinson, the two Englishmen who had been killed when Smith was captured by Opakankanaw's men. Here's how David Price describes what happened. Smith's accusers did not even try to justify their actions under English common law. Rather, the charges were based on a creative interpretation of Leviticus, probably the passage at chapter 24, verses 17 to 20, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life, all that stuff. The theory, apparently, was that Smith could be considered culpable because the men had been in his care when the natives ambushed him. Having barely avoided Chief Powhatan's executioners, he was set to hang at the decision of the colony's own leadership. Imagine believing you were sentenced to death at age 27, twice in one week by entirely different governments for entirely different reasons. After that, one wouldn't blame John Smith for not being much for celebrating New Year's. No doubt he would be amused or maybe shocked to see what passes for a bad week in the life of many Americans today. You had a bad date? Didn't get the bonus you wanted and cracked your cell phone screen? It's amazing you survived. Regardless, Smith again got lucky. 
perhaps just as he was considering that his last meal on Earth wasn't what it ought to be, Captain Newport arrived on the John and Francis with new colonists. Some accounts say a hundred, some more, some less, and fresh supplies. Finding the colony in chaos, Newport took command, summarily dismissed the trumped-up charges against Smith, and released Edward Maria Wingfield from his confinement on the Discovery. The new settlers came ashore, and the supplies were unloaded into the town's warehouse. On January 7th, catastrophe struck again. One of the newbies accidentally lost control of a fire in the cabin to which he had been assigned. What if your home, what if your family, what if your dope was on fire? Impossible, sir. It's in Johnson's underwear. It spread like wild through the small settlement and burned almost every building to the ground, including the warehouse that held most of the new supplies. Nobody died in the blaze, but once again, the Englishmen were alone in the North American wilderness with an empty larder, unsheltered in a fearsome winter, and facing long months before they could be resupplied. Some of them remained stoic. In Smith's account, the Reverend Hunt lost all his precious books and every other possession, except the clothes on his back, quote, yet none ever heard him repine at his loss. But the net effect was that the English now had no option other than to negotiate with the Powhatan Confederacy. The winter and spring of 1608 were difficult in Virginia, as on the coast of Maine for the Popham colonists. Powhatan sent venison every few days for Smith and his, quote, father, Captain Newport, but the settlers needed more food than had survived the fire. Ratcliffe, still the lawful president of the colony, was seemingly jealous of Smith's relationship with the local tribe, so he took the lead in bartering for food. Eager to win their favor and lacking Smith's street smarts, Ratcliffe showered the Indians with trade goods for food. Not surprisingly, this drove up the price of everything the colonists needed and made it more difficult to keep the colony adequately victualed. Smith found this intensely irritating. At some point, Powhatan issued an invitation for Smith and his great father Newport to visit Powhatan's capital at Wero Wokomoko, today's Richmond, and bargain for food. Smith and Newport quickly headed upriver with 30 or more armed men. Arriving at Wero-Wokomoko, Smith went ashore with about half the men to establish the diplomatic protocols for the summit meeting, as it were. Powhatan greeted Smith pleasantly, but asked him why it was Newport had not come ashore, and by the way, where were the cannons Smith had promised? Smith replied that Newport remained on the ship and would come the next day, and that the Indians had refused to take the cannons Smith had offered them on January 2nd. Powhatan, being nobody's fool, laughed at this and asked for smaller cannons, to which Smith agreed, knowing full well they wouldn't be able to schlep those either. The diplomatic dancing continued. Powhatan asked that the English lay down their arms, and Smith replied that, that was a ceremony our enemies desired, but never our friends. As an alternative gesture of good faith, Smith offered to swap young men. The next day, the English would assign a 13-year-old young man aptly named Thomas Savage to live with the Powhatans, 
and in return received Powhatan's servant, Namantak, who in April would return with Christopher Newport to England. We shall return to these young men. Various proclamations issued about the greatness of relevant kings and chiefs in the long-standing stalemate continued. Powhatan viewed Smith as just another subordinate chief in his own empire, and Smith sought to secure Powhatan's subjugation to James. To modern sensibilities, all of this seems idiotic. But all this was before anybody, even English people, had much to say about popular sovereignty. In 1608, sovereignty did not vest in the people as it came to do in the United States and subsequent republics. It vested in monarchs. So knowing who reported to which monarch was of the utmost importance, even in the middle of the woods in vast early America. For his part, Powhatan declared that the English were of his tribe. He did not want to run the risk of them and their high-tech weapons joining another tribe. Newport bargained with Powhatan for food, like Ratcliffe, in Smith's estimation, giving away the store. Newport was no fool, however. He had a different objective than Smith. While Smith was focused on the settlement's long-term relationship with the Powhatan Confederacy, Newport was keen to secure Powhatan's help in locating precious metals in the highlands to the west. This doesn't necessarily reveal Newport to be a close-minded greedball. But having been back to England, Newport was much closer to Virginia Company deliberations and internal politics, and he may well have thought that finding a path to profitability was the only chance the colony had for more supplies and settlers. Regardless, the negotiations concluded with tactical professions of support and mutual affection. Both sides were biding their time. They would not meet again in person for another six months, by which time much would have changed. The first few months of 1608 were, again, largely wasted. Newport gathered samples of supposed ore to bring back to England, while Smith again took charge of the colony. During these months, the only bright spot were regular visits from Pocahontas. David Price describes these moments, quote, Amid Smith's aggravations, he found respite from time to time in the visits of a young acquaintance. Quote, Very often she came to our fort and what she could get for Captain Smith, two colonists wrote of Pocahontas. Her especially he ever much respected. If she had originally pictured him as a captive servant who would spend his days making her bells and jewelry, their relationship had evolved to give her something of greater value. Friendship with someone who shared her inquisitive sensibility. I'm going to pause here and say that an inquisitive sensibility runs in Pocahontas's family. We can see that with Powhatan and Opakankanaw, and I can testify to it myself. Pocahontas is my own great-to-the-tenth grandmother. This is not a big deal. There are roughly 100,000 Americans and English descended from her. And I can say with great confidence that the trait persisted in her lineage for many generations. Back to Price, 
She was curious about the English, and she enjoyed being among them. In Smith, she had found an Englishman who could speak her language and satisfy her curiosity about these foreigners, although Smith had practical reasons to encourage the visits, honing his Algonquin, maintaining lines of communication with an ally in Powhatan's court. He also formed an admiration for her and took an avuncular interest in her. For those of you who, like me, didn't actually know that word, avuncular means relating to or as an uncle. The point being that neither the perverts at Disney nor the folks who cast Colin Farrell as Smith in the movie The New World in 2005 accurately characterized the relationship between Smith and Pocahontas. As her great-to-the-tenth grandson, I'm offended. Back to Price, who describes the first recorded cartwheels in North America. Pocahontas was not yet on the cusp of womanhood, and her visits found her playing energetically with the few boys of the fort as well as talking with Smith. She would, a colonist remembered, rally the boys and make them wheel falling on their hands, turning their heels upwards, whom she would follow and wheel herself so naked as she was all the fort over. Only when girls reached puberty would they regularly wear the apron-like deerskin dresses of Powhatan women. Whether she visited furtively or with her father's knowledge is unclear, but it is doubtful that Powhatan would have knowingly let his daughter go to Jamestown alone and make herself vulnerable to capture by the untrustworthy colonists. Then again, it's a fair bet that Powhatan was no helicopter parent. Had Pocahontas gone to school, there's no way that Powhatan would have showed up to complain about her grades. At some point just before Newport's departure, Powhatan had sent a band of messengers to him carrying 20 turkeys with an offer from Powhatan to trade them for 20 swords. This was an appallingly bad deal for the English, even if it had not involved arming a potential enemy. However, in David Price's words, Powhatan had correctly sized up the English captain's eagerness to please. In a parting gesture of magnanimity, Newport sent him the swords. In the dubious category of hoping to win an enemy over through concession, Neville Chamberlain had nothing on Newport. Now let's go to Price for the next bit. With Newport on his way to the Chesapeake Bay and thence to the Atlantic, Powhatan decided to try his luck with John Smith. This time he sent the turkeys to Jamestown accompanied by a young messenger, his foreign exchange student, Thomas Savage, the English boy placed with Powhatan a month or six weeks before. On arriving at the fort, Savage told Smith of the emperor's renewed offer of turkeys for swords. Smith saw no reason at all to arm a potential enemy. He sent the rest of Powhatan's messengers home with gifts for themselves and a curt no for Powhatan. Then weapons and tools started disappearing. Local Indians, some visiting the settlement as friends, others sneaking in, were taking what Smith would not trade. The English took various measures to interdict and deter the thefts, with violence escalating. 
Finally, Smith captured 10 locals red-handed. And no, that term did not originate with English descriptions of indigenous peoples or have anything to do with them. Being nobody's fool, I checked that before using the term in this podcast, and it originates with the Scots in the 1400s to mean a murderer with blood on his hands. Anyway, Smith interrogated the captured Indians by various means inconsistent with the Geneva Conventions and learned that the Pespaheggs and the Chickahominies had planned to attack the English in the fields to seize their tools. But the paramount chief Powhatan, unhappy that Smith had not delivered the swords or promised cannon, had persuaded them to take them by stealth rather than by ambush. Between Newport's appeasement and their own larceny, the Indians had now supplemented their powerful longbows with steel hatchets and other edged weapons. More importantly, one of the interrogated Indians claimed that Powhatan was preparing for war upon Namantuck's return from England, including an ambush of Captain Newport. Smith was confirmed in his suspicion that Powhatan was feigning his interest in absorbing the English into his confederacy, and that he was not without a deadly hatred. In James Horn's words, the discovery of a plot emphasized the importance of maintaining their defenses at Jamestown, becoming self-sufficient in food, and exercising extreme caution beyond the fort. Survival depended on a deadly game of keeping one step ahead of their adversaries. On April 20th, only 10 days after Newport departed, Captain Francis Nelson in the Phoenix arrived with between 40 and 60 new settlers and a lot of food. He had left England with Newport in the late fall, but a storm near the mouth of the Chesapeake separated the Phoenix from Newport's John and Francis and blew her to the south. Nelson had thought it best to winter in the West Indies. Let those of you who would not have done the same throw the first stone. And his men had foraged in the islands there to preserve the company's supplies for the settlement. Now he had returned, pushing the settlement's population close to 200, just as the Virginia spring was unfolding. If the winter had been as hard as the account suggests, Nelson would have arrived just as Virginia's beautiful redbuds and dogwoods would have been coming into bloom. Over the next six weeks, the reinvigorated colony would make good progress reconstructing the settlement. On June 2nd, 1608, Captain Nelson and the Phoenix departed for England, arriving there not long after Newport. In addition to a load of cedar clabbered, Nelson carried something of immense value, a sketch map and a bundle of papers that Smith had handed him just before he embarked. Somehow, Smith had drawn a detailed map of the region and the different tribal territories and written a 13,000-word account of sorts describing everything that had happened since the original colonists had left England in late 1606. Here's how Price describes it. Smith's intentions for the document are unknown, as is its intended recipient. It could have been a report to the company or a private letter to a friend. The style was mostly understated and matter-of-fact. The grammar was often convoluted, but its contents were too sensational to stay private for long. Within weeks after Nelson's landing, the document had made its way, second or third hand, to an editor named John Healy, and from there 
to the printing press. By summer's end, it appeared for sale under the tediously long title, A True Relation of Such Occurrences and Accidents of Note as Hath Happened in Virginia Since the First Planting of That Colony, Which is Now Resident in the South Part Thereof, Till the Last Return from Thence. The True Relation was the first published account of the distant colony to reach the public's hands. The soldier with a grammar school education had, as it turned out, written the earliest history of English America's birth. He had done it unwittingly. The editing and publishing of the book took place entirely without Smith's involvement or even his knowledge. Healy explained that he had omitted some material fit to be private. He also tacked on a hopeful concluding sentence in which he had Smith portray the colonists as, quote, being in good health, all our men well contented, free from mutinies, in love with one another, and as we hope, in continual peace with the Indians. That last tacked-on sentence was, of course, nonsense on stilts, each clause being almost exactly the opposite of the truth. But it would do its part to keep the supplies and people coming to Virginia. With Newport and Nelson well on their way to England and therefore unable to meddle, Smith took two trips to explore the Chesapeake in search of the three things that the Virginia Company was interested in. Precious metals, a middle passage to Asia, and the recovery of at least a few of the lost colonists of Roanoke. Plus a fourth that was Smith's alone, diplomatic relations with tribes that were potentially counterweights to the Powhatans. The English needed allies in the region, and they needed them quickly. This was not easily achieved because Powhatan and Opakankanaw had been building up their unified empire precisely to prevent foreigners from dividing the Indians of the region and thereby conquering them. You might be wondering why it was so important to the Virginia Company that Roanoke survivors be found. They were not, after all, great humanitarians and were burning through human lives at Jamestown at an astonishing rate. But if Roanoke survivors had embedded with Indians for the last 23 years, then they would be of incalculable value for their knowledge of the region. Perhaps they could point the way to gold and silver and a passage to Asia, if only they could be found. In any case, Smith's two trips produced a lot of useful information about the Chesapeake and its tribes that has fascinated historians and ethnologists and anthropologists ever since. I'm going to pass over most of that and focus on a small number of specific events that are important to the broader Jamestown story. Smith took a barge with a total of 14 men, including six gentlemen, four soldiers, and a physician. We do not know whether the toffs along were of the more capable sort, or if Smith brought them along on the same rationale that Sir Francis Drake would use to schlep upper-class people on his voyages. He may have wanted the credibility of their upper-class testimony in case he found something valuable, or gotten a scrape that might be second-guessed by the corporate tools back home. Regardless, it provided a basis for me to mention Drake in the episode, so I at least am grateful for that. 
The barge headed first to the eastern shore and then sailed up the Chesapeake. He found the coasts of the Chesapeake to be extremely fertile, yet mostly unpopulated. This was in contrast with the report of Ralph Lane, he of the 1585 Roanoke Expedition, who encountered many villages and a large population. Long-standing and attentive listeners will recall that Thomas Harriet, the scientist and linguist along on that 1585 expedition, had observed that the Indians in many of the villages they visited got sick and died in large numbers shortly thereafter. It is by comparing the accounts of Smith and Lane and Harriet that modern historians and epidemiologists have included without definitive proof that the English had unwittingly already substantially diminished the population of the area, just as would be revealed to have happened along the New England coast in the years before Tisquantum's kidnapping and his return. I'll put a link to an interesting paper on that subject in the show notes. This would become one of the points of argument between the high-counter and low-counter scholars who have tried to estimate the population of North America just before Europeans arrived. As those of you who started at the beginning of the history of the Americans may remember, my sympathies, informed by no actual expertise, are with the high-counters. At some point in mid-June, the barge followed a couple of Indians up a creek and into an ambush. Somewhere between three and four hundred Indians, armed and painted for war, materialized on the bank. Smith ordered a warning volley fired, and the men aimed low by design, shooting their balls into the water at the bank. The loud report from the muskets terrified the Indians, who dropped their weapons. Smith greeted them and asked why they attacked, and they reported that They had been so ordered by the paramount chief Powhatan. According to the Indians, Wahoon Sunnacock, recall that was Powhatan's actual name at the time, so directed from the discontents at Jamestown because our Captain Smith did cause them to stay in their country against their wills. In other words, Chief Powhatan knew of the discontent among the settlers and had been encouraged by Ratcliffe's faction to ambush Smith If the opportunity arose, Ratcliffe had been revealed as a traitor. The exploration continued all the way north to the Potomac, reaching as far as the site of the future Washington, D.C., before turning around in early July. Along the way, Smith learned of a powerful and fearsome tribe known as the Massawomacs, fierce enemies of the Powhatan Confederacy. Smith did not locate them, but he became keenly interested in meeting them, precisely to strengthen the geopolitical position of the English. By mid-July, the barge was heading back down the Chesapeake to Jamestown. The barge ran gently aground on a shoal at some point, and they saw that they were surrounded by fish confined in very shallow waters. Smith waded in and made a game of skewering fish with his sword, and the other men joined in. In this unlikely setting, Smith almost lost his life. Quoting David Price, Smith encountered a deadly adversary. He took a stab at a strange-looking creature, flat and undulating, which onlookers found hard to describe. Quote, much in the fashion of a thornback, but with a long tail like a riding rod whereon the middest is a most poison to sting, 
of two or three inches long, bearded like a saw on each side. Smith had caught a stingray, almost certainly one of the variety known as Deocytus sabina, which is found in the Chesapeake Bay. The stingray defended itself by whipping around its black tail, which finally connected with Smith's forearm and plunged in almost an inch and a half. Smith screamed, no blood nor wound was seen but a little blue spot. But the torment was instantly so extreme. The stingray's venom was working. The physician hastened to apply a, quote, precious oil of unknown description. But Smith's hand, arm, and shoulder swelled frighteningly. As his agony continued for some hours, Smith asked his men to dig a grave for him on a nearby island. This they did, and with much sorrow, prepared for his funeral. But the grave was not to be filled. The physician's ointment, or perhaps Smith's own robust constitution, unexpectedly overcame the effects of the poison. As Smith's pain receded, he addressed the situation with typical pugnacity by eating the stingray for supper. The barge got back to Jamestown on July 31st, and the settlement was in chaos. At the height of the disease-ridden summer, Ratcliffe had ordered the now enlarged colony to devote its labors to building him a big house, and he and his friends had helped themselves to a large part of the new supplies brought by Newport in January and Nelson in the spring, the so-called first supply. The colonists, newbies far outnumbering the original cohort, were on the verge of mutiny and begged Smith to depose Ratcliffe and take over. He and the third remaining council member, the principled but very sick Martin Scrivener, who had arrived only in January, overthrew Ratcliffe. Smith's first act was to put Scrivener temporarily in charge with the help of some of Smith's supporters, after which he embarked on a second exploration of the Chesapeake. The second trip of 1608 accomplished three things. First, Smith and his men encountered the affirmation fearsome tribe, the Iroquoian-speaking Massawomics. He leveraged his relationship with them into diplomatic encounters with other key anti-Powhatan players in the region, and even brokered a peace deal between several warring tribes. Second, he learned enough from these tribes at the periphery of the Powhatan Confederacy to conclude that there was in fact no middle passage to Asia. Finally, he negotiated and bluffed his way to a big load of corn, all that he could carry back to Jamestown. I'm going to spare you the ins and outs and what have yous from the second trip up the Chesapeake, except to relate a couple of the amusing moments. On the first encounter with the Massawomax, James Horn's version is pretty amusing. Quote, They encountered seven or eight canoes full of Indians speaking a strange language, who they later learned were Massawomics. The Indians prepared to attack. With only five men out of ten able to fight, Smith decided that desperate measures were called for to save themselves. He placed their hats on sticks along the sides of the barge and gave each man two muskets, so that five men looked like twenty. The ruse succeeded, seemingly overmatched. The Indians returned to shore. 
The Englishman followed, still eager to make contact and to trade. Initially wary, eventually two armed Indians approached and, satisfied that there was no danger, urged the remainder to join them. Smith traded for supplies, bows, arrows, wooden shields, clubs, and bearskins, and learned by sign language that the Indians had been at war with the Takwas. Smith then made his way to the Takwas, who approached aggressively until Smith showed them all the stuff they got from their enemies, the Massawomics. Smith claimed that it was the booty of successful war rather than the proceeds of trade, and the Takwas were suitably impressed. Ambushing gave way to feasting. They told Smith about another nearby Iroquoian tribe, the Susquehannocks, and Smith asked for an introduction to them. It was the apparently very tall Susquehannocks who disabused Smith of any idea that there was an ocean nearby in the west, accessible via one of the rivers that flowed into the Chesapeake. In this way, Smith worked his way through the region. In all, he and his men ended up wildly outnumbered in several hostile encounters, and in each case, he managed to get out of the situation through bluff and guile. Tribes were variously friendly and hostile. Feasting and dancing seems to have alternated with ambushes, which makes a certain sense if you imagine that outside of the Confederacy of Powhatan and Opakankanah, tribes of the region often went to war with their neighbors. And that boatload of corn at the end, it came from one of the tribes that attacked him and then backed off. Smith had noticed their fields of ripening maize and demanded that they fill up his boat with food, else he would burn their fields. They complied. Smith and his men arrived back in Jamestown with the corn on September 7, 1608. The colony was not in such bad shape as it had been in July, but the summer's disease had taken its toll, and not nearly enough work had been done, even as the colonists had been diverted from working on Ratcliffe's house. Smith would take over. This is a great place to stop for now. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. And your emails have been very encouraging, so please keep them coming. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. Until next time.